the Fail On Podcast, episode 042, the final episode of season one, the Fail On Podcast. I did the best that I could, which was I typed the whole thing out. So I had like six pages and I had rehearsed it. I did a lot of things wrong and, and that's how I'm able to do what I do now very powerfully because I did so many things wrong the first time. But through that kind of failing in that first one, a lot of good things happened. Welcome to the Fail On Podcast, where we explore the hardships and obstacles today's industry leaders face on their journey to the top of their fields through careful insight and thoughtful conversation. By embracing failure, we'll show you how to build momentum without being consumed by the result. Now, please welcome your host, Rob Nunnery. Hey there, and welcome to the show that knows publicly sharing your failures is not only the fastest way to learn, but it's also the fastest way to grow your business and live a life of absolute freedom in a world that only likes to share successes. We dissect the struggle by talking to honest and real entrepreneurs, not all of the overnight success stories we tend to hear about. And this is a platform for their stories. And today's story is of Roddy Chung. Roddy is an accomplished Asian American violinist and speaker known for his high energy performances with many of the music industry's most recognized acts. Roddy has toured with the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, Shania Twain, and Celine Dion, and he has performed for audiences all around the world, including the President of the United States, the Queen of England, the Pope, Oprah, and countless other notable figures, and Rob Nunnery, of course. I actually heard Roddy perform in San Diego at Todd Herman's 90-Day Year event, and he was amazing. We'll be discussing why Roddy wanted to quit the violin at the age of 11 after pressure from his parents and how he didn't see himself doing it professionally. He discusses the importance of following a passion and networking in order to find opportunity. And he also goes into the steps that he took to land an audition and play with Shania Twain and Celine Dion. Really cool stories and really powerful. But first, if you'd like to stay up to date on all the Fail On podcast interviews and key takeaways from each guest, simply go to failon.com and sign up for our newsletter at the bottom of the page, failon.com. So there's a lot I want to dig into because your story is incredibly inspiring. But just to take it back and to give everybody some context, what? why the violin? What got you into playing the violin? You know, I think that's something that is very common in Asian families. And my family growing up was Chinese American. And, you know, I think my dad was into it too, but really the, the pushing for the violin was from my mom. I've talked with her about it here and there. She says that I chose the instrument at age two. I have a hard time believing that. <laughs> I don't remember choosing it. I, I have a hard time believing it. I think that I did choose it somehow. And I did see my two-year-old niece also choose the instrument at age two, but I think that's because she saw me playing it. And so it was kind of something that as a family, in Asian families, that's something that is very typical. That's why in my speaking event where we met, you know, people laugh when I say that you have two choices, piano or violin. And uh, people laugh either they knew that nerdy Asian guy in school that had to carry around the the violin or even cello or something, or Asians in the audience are laughing because either they had that torture done to them or they're doing totally. it to their kids. And if I don't have any kids, but if I ever have kids, they are also going to play piano or violin. Yeah, yeah. And 
the idea that my mom said was if I can get the, the right side of your brain going, hopefully the left side of your brain will also kind of grow. I think it was good. I think the best thing that happened was just discipline. Just the constant practice and having to do it. Cause I know a lot of Correct. kids grow up having to go to the piano lesson or having to go to the violin lesson. Yeah. And, and back then it's like, as a kid, you're like, ah, like for most kids, I want to go outside and play. I, I want to hang out with my friends. Exactly. Is that how you felt as well? Exactly. Yeah. 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 And they let me do that. So, but before I could catch fireflies or go fishing or those things, play Frisbee with my friends, I had to practice and it was about 20 minutes. So any ideas of a tiger mom or six hours or you can't eat until you're done practicing. That was not what was going on in my family. So I thought it was very good, actually pretty healthy. When I was a kid, I thought it was totally wrong because I could see my kids could just play ball right away. And I had to practice first and sometimes they were waiting for me to play. But of course, now I am thankful for that. And my mom did, I I talked with her and these are her words. She said, I did push you, but I didn't force you. So I didn't like it, did not like it growing up. It was just more something I had to do, kind of like take out the garbage or brush my teeth. These are things that you do. I did notice the other kids in my neighborhood didn't have to do that. But at the same time, there was a feeling, I don't know if we actually had a conversation, but there was a feeling that they kind of envied that, that I could play an instrument. I still thought it was dorky, but that was my my lot in life as a two-year-old, seven-year-old, 11-year-old. And I did want to quit right around 11 years old. I think that's very common with all kids. And the difference with my parents and other parents is that my parents did not let me quit. They they never said it, but the vibe was you kind of don't have a choice maybe later. But for now, as an 11-year-old, you're going to keep playing this violin. What did your parents hope to – did they just want you to have that skill because they knew it would serve you? They probably didn't know you'd go on to be like a rock star. You know what I mean? Correct. So, they didn't know I would go on and neither did I. Yeah. I think that the they were good parents in exposing me to a lot of things. They allowed me to get involved with – sports and things with friends, things with photography, stuff with the park district. Uh, I liked animals, so things with animals. Uh, They exposed me to a lot of things. And uh, the violin and music, they knew that it was something that would be important for the development of my brain and especially that character quality of discipline. And again, it's just something that's, that's very culturally normal for Asian cultures. And that's, it's, it's a developmental thing. And then also just that character quality of discipline, I think that's that's why they did it. We weren't really into sports. We watched it, but it wasn't like, okay, you're going to play soccer. I remember the, most of the kids in my area played soccer, and it wasn't something that was going to be for me. So it was more music that was going to be my way, and, and it wasn't like I had a huge passion for it. It was just something that I did. So I'm kind of repeating myself now, but that's how it was. But in terms of like – in your childhood, was your like skilled wise? Were you just heads and above, heads and shoulders above other kids, or were you just kind of average? But you just kept going, kept going, kept getting better and better. Well, I was part of a violin academy, so this violin academy was in the suburbs of Chicago, and it was called the Hague Levitin Academy of Performing Arts. This woman, Betty Haig, is actually still alive. And she taught me and she taught my niece and nephew and she just is instilling fear into these kids to play well. And she's really good actually at making kids play advanced pieces at a very young age. So in that school, there were a lot of us that were doing really well, that were playing well. So I wasn't at the top. So I was probably right in the middle. My sister and my parents say that I was actually pretty good 
and but I didn't know that. I, I could see Carissa or these different people that could play better than me. They could play pieces that were more difficult than me. And I did practice, and I felt like I couldn't do what they were doing. And so I was, I was not the best, I didn't feel. I could definitely play better than most people at my public school, though. It, I did not go through the public orchestra program. I did go through the band program, though, in junior high and high school, played trumpet, and that was great. I, and I, I was, I'm glad I was put in that academy, though, because it made me work harder and it was normal to be a little bit better at this instrument and not just an average training. It was an above average kind of training. And did you have a competitive nature, like in that advanced school, like you saw people doing better than you? Did that drive you to? Oh, that's a good point. I think that it got instilled into me and I wasn't the most competitive, but yes, in classical music, there is a competitive element placed in there where there's kind of two types of playing. There's the soloist where you're playing a solo piece or you're in the part, you're part of an orchestra. And in the orchestra, you audition to get to the seat ahead of you. And there was a youth orchestra I was a part of. And the best people were in the best seats. But I, I so you're in the system, so you have to try to get better and, and you try to move forward and, and get into the better seats. But as far as being super competitive and killer instinct, there are players that are like that. That wasn't me. I was really wanting harmony socially and getting <laughs> right. along with people. And so I would maybe be first chair in the second violins or kind of maybe in the back of the first violins, but I was never like number one, first chair and the main soloist. So I really didn't think that this was going to be a thing for me. And I, I stopped playing at age 17. So right after my junior year, I kind of stopped playing. I thought that I'm not going to do this professionally. And it was kind of sad because I didn't really know what to do, but I was active with a lot of things. I was very active in high school. So I just kind of poured my energies into other things and got it. So and then from there went to college, went to Indiana university, which has a great music school. So people assume that I did musical <laughs> performance, right. but I did not. I, uh, I really didn't know what I was doing. I, I got a bachelor's in telecommunications and African-American studies. So, And this whole time, violence, not even on the mind? Correct. Not even, it's just no. total on the back burner. It's actually under my bed, collecting <laughs> dust. I got it. Okay. So, but I was involved with a lot of things with performing arts. So I explored playing guitar, singing, dancing, and then production things such as staging or lighting and audio. And I, I did a lot of that in college. And... I mean, I thought of, with my imagination, dreamed of things and wanting to be a part of bands and stuff. It would always be kind of more towards music or performing uh, in the context of music because that's what I saw. MTV was playing music videos back then, and so I kind of wanted to be a part of that somehow. So, but I did okay academically, but uh, academics wasn't my forte. I just got through as much as I could so that I could socially do things in college and and then work on my little projects that I was doing in college. I would say, you know, sometimes people ask me, what is your you know, biggest regret or something in life? I mean, I have a few, but one of them is that I took five years at college and I really wish now looking back that I would have just pushed and, and done it in four. Why? Why is that a regret? Because once I got out of college, I wasn't I wasn't able to excel in college, in, in, with, whether it's socially or academically with tests. I was kind of just getting by. 
But once I got out of college, I, I had a lot of character qualities that I read about and I would try to do. And those were instilled in me from my family and also from the influence of church. Do what you say. There's this saying that says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, which means kind of do what you say, finish what you start. And so I had these kinds of sayings and I would actually do them. Do you remember a, a store called Successories? Yeah, it was, uh, they would have these sayings, something like the, you know, success, uh, the journey is the, is the sex, success, not the destination. And it would have a picture of a boat or something. These sold a lot. I loved successories. Like I would have these motivational quotes all over. And now they're kind of cheesy actually. But, but (laughs) back then, actually back then people thought it was cheesy, but I like drank it like water. So one of my first jobs out of college was painting houses and I was not a good painter, but I, I did show up early and I did finish the job and I was really slow, but I was always there. And so this, this boss that had hired me to paint houses, he liked, he simply liked that, that I, I showed up a little early and I stayed a little late. And I noticed that those types of things gave me a chance Whereas what people were telling me or what I thought I was supposed to do in college didn't really, I couldn't find the success there. You just went back to really like the roots of like how you were raised and who you were. I found that people liked that. Like that was your unique quality that kind of made you stand apart from other people. I found that bosses and people that had money liked that. They wanted me to be around. I think I also was naively positive and smiling all the time (laughs) and and they, they liked I noticed a number of people liked that. And my jobs that I were, were, was getting had nothing to do with my, my major. I, I do advise young people to go to college unless you really, really know what you want to do. But if you, don't wanna, if you don't know what you want to do, I do suggest going to college because you can figure that out. It's kind of like a holding area. But to take five or six years, that's, those are years that could be used in the real world. So that's yeah. why I wish Got I would have finished in four years. In that fifth year, I I just took some extra classes and kind of hung out on campus because I was very familiar with it. And I loved the campus. I still had friends there. And and looking back now that I I could have gotten a jump a little bit more. And in the creative arts, that performing arts industry, you, know, you want to be younger. <laughs> you know, that's why, that's why <laughs> sure. some people actually start in their teens. Whereas I really got started more... Uh, a little bit in college, but, but really more like 24 is when I got my real first job. So, so you mentioned the whole Asian American culture thing and upbringing and being raised, choosing the violin or the piano. Was it, did your parents also have the mindset of, okay, you have to get all A's, you have to go to college, you have to get a good job, you have to get married, start a family, buy a house. Like, cause a lot of my Asian friends, like that's, that's their parents' view. Like yeah. they didn't want you to do anything other than the status quo. Don't go start this business. It's risky. You might lose all your money. I would agree with that. There was not massive pressure. I've heard of Asians having massive pressure, the young people. I had pressure. And sometimes my mother and I clashed. I mean, we love each other. They're still alive. My parents, we get along fabulously great. But there was some difficult things going on in my young 20s because I was certainly not getting into any trouble. That's kind of typical. I was reading books, hanging out with good people and trying to do things. A lot of them had to do with dance projects. Um, 
you know from my speaking event, besides painting houses, I was teaching aerobics. So I was really into fitness. My parents were concerned, though, that I had a bachelor's and I was going for jobs that really didn't require a higher degree. But I was like, this is really what I want to do. So these types of things that dealt with not the painting part, but the I, I kind of gravitated towards physical movement and music, those things put together, which ended up being the career that I have now. And I just kind of made boundaries. Even with my parents, I wouldn't necessarily tell them which projects I was doing. And I, I knew this is what I, I wanted to do. And I was listening to some of the uh, personal development material that was out there at that time. And one of the typical themes that, that was going through all the books was to do what you love and what you're passionate about. Nowadays, people actually throw water on that idea, but it was a direction for me. And I was like, I really enjoy music and dance and physical movement with music. And I want to get involved with that somehow. And it was the right move for me because I was able to build upon that. And so what was the transition from, okay, so you had these jobs after college, your first one sounded like it was a painting job. (laughs) Yeah. How did that transition into picking up the violin again. Yeah. One of the, like I said, one of my first jobs was actually teaching aerobics. And a friend of mine who was really involved in the music side, creating all this music for aerobic classes, she had moved to Nashville. There's a lot of recording and some music stuff going on. And right at this time, I was just hitting the seek button on the radio and I came across a rock song that had a violin in it. And the rock song was called Flood by the band Jars of Clay. So this was a band that was kind of on the rise. They were on MTV and there was a violin in there. And so my friends, we all liked this music. It was alternative music, that genre in the 90s. And uh, I started playing Jars of Clay songs just by ear. So there were a number of things that happened there that I was trained in a Suzuki way growing up with music. And I typically played with music or memorized, when I say music, sheet music. So I memorized what I saw on the sheet music and then I would play it. There was no sheet music for alternative rock music. So I just copied what I heard. And during that time, my friend Becca had moved down to Nashville and we were talking simply as friends. And she told me that she enjoyed Nashville, but there was someone who was being very persistent in asking her out. And this person was a producer of this Jars of Clay CD. So, you know, saying it to you here in a podcast is, uh, you know, just like us having a a cup of coffee or a glass of water and saying it, but you you saw the live audience, people think this is so hilarious because I just told her, go out with him, talk to him. I, I want a tour with Jars of Clay. I definitely... I was naively positive, like anything that could possibly work. I was like all in, this yep. is going to work. Yep. And I still am like that a little bit. And but I think that's a, it's a very positive trait because you have kind of the mindset of like anything's possible. Definitely. You know what I mean? You don't put up these ro- mental roadblocks saying, oh, this can't be done because of this, this, and this. No, it, those types of things were so terrifying to me. They would make me cry. They would upset me so much that I just block them out. I'd be like, blah, 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 blah. You know, I'll be talking like, I don't, I don't want to hear that stuff. You know, even whether it's in my own head or a friend might just innocently say, well, that's not going to work. And they're not even meaning to be like, they're actually kind of trying to like, just protect me or something. And I'd be like, no, no, I'd be, I was a little 
a little crazy, you know. I just and they'd be like, "Geez, not a big deal." Yeah. I said, it is a big deal. Yeah. This is what I'm trying to do. I mean, that's interesting because yeah, I mean, they, we would still be friends, but they were just like, "Well, that's just Roddy. Roddy's like that, and and he is a positive guy, so he gets a little intense if you say that he can't do something or whatever." And so, you know, I mean, the strange thing is that Becca did go out on a date with this guy, and he did like her so much that he set up the meetings where I would meet up with the jars of clay guys and. The timing and everything was quite perfect that they hired me to play with them on their first tour. That's how the violin came back out of the dust from under my bed. And I just saw somewhere where I could perform and have that passion going on and get paid a little bit. Mm. Do you think you do you think everything would have unfolded like it did had she not dated that guy and introduced you? Like do you think playing the violin was still in the cards for you? I think maybe because you know, time flies by really quickly, but that era of your 20s kind of does last a long time. It's, it's a, it does last a long time, and it was really the one skill that I had that, I, that was kind of better than other people in auditions. So, you know, in my speaking event, I don't talk too much about acting and these other things because then my message becomes diluted. But here I can go into details and uh, but I was doing other things in, in the choreography world, the dancing world, and the acting world, and, and auditioning, and doing anything that was creative, and landing jobs. But the only thing that I saw that, let's say there was an audition for uh, something with dance, there'd be like 100 people, 100 guys even, for this Disney job, or a Britney Spears tour, or something like that. But if there was a violin job that wasn't classical, that was like violin, that was with pop music. There's re- in Chicago, there were only like three of us. So, so the odds are way better. <laughs> yeah, the odds were way better. And so I, I think that I was trying all those things, including the violin. And the violin things, people s- seemed to, to, to hire me. I did not understand why back then. I just was so... Just take the, job, take the job and run, right? Yeah, like. <laughs> and excited to, to try to do whatever they said. I look back now, and I think I know a little bit more why, is that there's that proficiency there, but just that 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 energy without being overbearing. or not, It wasn't too much, but there was a lot of it. And so they know that, okay, well, that's lively. That'll draw attention, and we can associate that with my product or service, you know, whatever. But I didn't know that. I thought that's how everyone was was performing. And little did I know that a lot of people would audition with a lot of fear. And and I did that kind of audition with other things. But with the violin, I was more confident. I knew what I was doing. And I had a, a rock influence. So I'd allow these things that were influenced by Van Halen or something that would be outlandish for most violinists. But for me, people would just be like, oh, he's kind of like this rock violinist david lee roth bruce lee they would kind of try to figure out what i am well we like it and he's positive and smiling all the time so let's just use that were you one of the like were there other violinists kind of doing that same thing like that took rock influences and and could really do what you were doing or were you one of the there's a lot more now but there's a guy named boyd tinsley he was with dave matthews so a lot of people knew him he had this cool vibe to him with his dreads and sunglasses <laughs> yeah. and stuff. I didn't have that. I was very jeans and t-shirt. <laughs> right. So there was that. Charlie Daniels. Yep. 
you know, Devil Went Down to Georgia is still very loved. He he was seemingly an older gentleman, but he'd shred his bow and. I'm from Georgia, so I, yeah. I know all about it. <laughs> yeah, that guy from Kansas, you know, the the band Kansas. But uh, so, no, there weren't that many. I think violinists are trained in classical music. Some do jazz, and so, but it's they still have that music stand, and it's still stay in one place or be in an orchestra. I didn't have a music stand. I didn't, I just, again, I had a lot of energy, but not so much that that it was like, whoa, this is too much. But they're like, okay, well, this is very lively what he's doing. So, so you got the job with Jars of Clay. How long, how long were, were you with those guys? It, it wasn't really that long. It was for a tour in uh, the year, in, in, in a certain year. So that's where, you know, you and I are stories as far as failing on. That's where one of my big failures in life happened was that I ended up getting fired from the job, Jars of Clay. Now, I knew back then and it still is true today that it's difficult to get a job where some larger organization is simply paying you in the creative arts or the performing arts space. So uh, it was very devastating for me. When I share this in my speaking events, you know, I share that I, I wrote a letter, which is true, and I wanted to document things. I was trying to do things the right way. It was perceived as being um, unruly or disruptive in a bad way. And that's not where my heart was. I was trying to communicate and things got miscommunicated. So that's the real story, which again, I, I hope that I'm able to share some nuanced things in this podcast, whereas in a speaking event, I'm just more clear. Like I just basically blame myself, which is true Like and, and better to blame yourself because then you still have some control and you can like recover or, let or hustle. Let it go eventually, right? Or even let it go, yeah. but you have control. But if it's someone else's fault, something else out there has control over you for the rest of your life, really. So, so when, but, that, when that happened, what was like, were you, what, what was, what was your hope? Was your hope to continue touring with them, mm -hmm. keep that job? And like, this is awesome. It's my new career. I'm going to be a rock and roll violin player. Correct. For this band that was on the rise. Mm, yeah, exactly. And, and, and everywhere we went, we, we were interacting with famous people. So I enjoyed that also because they, they were a respected band and they still are because they were making real music. And, but I was uh, a bit young and naive. So my hope was that that I would get paid a little more. I look back and uh, I'm glad it happened because I, I've never done anything like that ever again. And, and now I've had a 20-year career of touring with so many different people. I'm still touring now. And then the speaking career came out. And I just, just don't want to be misinterpreted in that way by letting an email or a letter speak for me. That's all. That's all. I was hoping to get a little bump in pay. And... and I thought that I was bringing a lot of value to the band and it came off wrong. It came off like I was thinking I was hot stuff. Who was it that actually let you go? Was it, was it the other band members or was it the, a studio? Or It's tough to say because I got a letter that had the guys in the band, their name on it, and but it was from management. When I look back on it, if I was in the position of the band, I would have probably let me go also. It did, it did come off wrong. I have all the letters and everything in an envelope and I haven't looked at it in a long time because I, it would just upset me at my own immaturity. My dad had told me not to send the, the original letter. And so you ran it by him first? I did. I'm glad that I had him in my 
Uh, he's still alive. I still do. I still bounce things off of him. And he's very wise. He told me not to send the letter. And, and I thought I was right. I really did. I really felt that I was right. This was the way to do it. And that kind of energy comes off, just comes off badly to, to higher ups. Very common with musicians. So I think it's very common with people. Of course. With young people. Of course. You know, you, you know, you think you're right and this is the way, and this is the way to, to quote unquote fight it, but there should be no fight. You know, it, it, I really didn't have the wisdom to see their perspective and their perspective was we're trying new things as a band. We're kind of losing money. And then, you know, this musician it's asking new guys, asking for more money, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, so, so what was your mindset? You know, once that happened, were you like, what am I going to do now? Were you, did yeah. you have connections to where you could, you know, find somewhere else to tour or somebody else to tour with? Was, yeah. You, know, you and I, you know, communicated a little bit on email before this and, and this is where, you know, like I don't really have a strong definition for failure, but I know the vibe. And the vibe of failure is is all those negative feelings and you are just existing in them. So, you know, just the embarrassment, regret, you wish you could go back in time and, and either redo the letter or not send the letter at all, you know, upset. And again, blaming yourself is good because it's related to taking responsibility but some people like myself blame, I blame myself too harshly. So you're just beating yourself up. I, I can know. tell because I feel like you're still, you're still looking at the younger version of you like, oh, why'd you do that? Like yeah. I still get that kind of feeling. It was, it was a very big thing in my life. And so, yeah, I, I can kind of get into that space again. Other negative things, symptoms of depression, you feel depressed. You, you don't want to get out of bed. You're, you feel like a failure. And even kind of, maybe not exactly, but some things I want to end my life kind of, or is my life over? Like, you know, it's, it, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast too. You know that there's someone out there that's really barely hanging on and, and I've definitely been in that spot. And, and that was one of my failures, just an experience that I went through also, there are others, but they're so awful, like in my head, that I don't even think about them. Like I'm like, la, 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 they're not there, you know, but they did happen. And, and when you audition for something and you don't get it, or let's say that you're running late and you're, you're stumbling in there and you're fumbling through this audition of whatever you're trying to audition for, those are mini failures. And, and I don't, it, it's a horrible feeling. So of course, when you when you prepare like crazy and then you go in there and you rock it and the people that are judging or making those decisions are giving you, you know, major feedback of, of positive words, then that's the opposite. That's like a huge win. I mean, and I do the, I do the opposite too. I'm literally throwing my hands up. I'm pumping my fist in front of them. And when I leave, I mean, so, but I, I'm, I'm willing to, to ride that roller coaster but this this story with the jars of clay thing, it was the first time I had come across something pretty big, and and it was something that came out of my own mind and 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 hustling and driving back and forth from Nashville to Illinois, Chicago to Nashville, and trying to make this, this thing happen. So it did happen, and then I kind of feel like I blew it up. It was something that really really got me down for a year and a half. Long time. How are you? That is a long time. How yeah. are you able to, like on the, you know, 
at the end of that year and a half, what was it that was it time that was able to help you like heal a little bit and get out of that? Or what was it? Did you do anything differently? I think that time helped a little bit. I have and had a lot of good friends. I did not totally isolate myself. I still spent time with people and especially then, and I still do, I prayed a lot and were you in Nashville at the time or Chicago? Chicago. Chicago. Yeah, I would visit Nashville a lot, but I didn't live there. Were and you, I never lived there. That year and a half, were you actively trying to get other roles or were you just like, okay, I just need a, I just need a minute here? I did hunker down and just like, I need, I need a minute here to like recover here. But I still tried a few things. And one thing that happened was I... Yeah, I don't really get to share this part because it's, it's so like sideways. But uh, like during that time... I had sent a headshot to some casting directors. One of them was a, just random casting directors. It wasn't even for a specific purpose, but they were casting for this movie with Mel Gibson. It was called Payback. And I had longer hair in the in the headshot, and they kind of needed a Asian-Chinese thug with longer hair, and they booked me on that. That was one thing. So you had asked earlier, you know, were there little jobs? And I, I did go for some things. And, and I did still have these experiences that were very cool. I ended up touring with another uh, young lady named Rebecca St. James. And I did some spot dates with another band. These bands are from the Christian music industry out of Nashville. It was called DC Talk. So I did work with some of these things. So things were still happening and through all that, especially with this, uh, with just a couple spot dates with DC Talk, did I come across a guitar player named Brent Barkus, who was one of the band members for Shania Twain. So he called me and and asked if I would be interested in in auditioning. So that's kind of where, by hanging in there just long enough. I mean, like, let's just say someone's fishing, you know, just having that patience <laughs> and just sitting there yeah. and not giving up. I, and during that time I was at the library a lot reading all these books. You know, I read the whole Stallone story, you know, about Rocky. And in, in that story, he literally talks about going to the library and reading. And I'm like, I'm in the library <laughs> reading this story about Stallone being in a library. So I still felt like I was very alive and that I'm still going for it. And this is how things happen for, this is how the career is supposed to go a little bit. But but um, I, I I think that you know, now that I know, you know, you, you've seen me speaking more and, and I've played with a lot of larger acts. And now that the financial thing in my life is really more squared away, it's just like success, success, success. And, you know, Ferrari and nice watch and all this stuff. I mean, I'm, I have some of those things and I think it's, it's very interesting and a, a bit silly, but it is interesting, you know, just to take some time to talk with you about this time of, of, of a failure vibe. It's hard for me to define it, but I definitely had that vibe and it was still there and it was, I hated it, but it was still there and I was still trying to be scrappy and try to get a job here or there and I, I just think it's, to live. I think it's an interesting conversation with you, especially because like you've done a lot of self-development work, like personal growth type work. So like you said, when Pete, when even your friends would say something like, oh, you can't do that. You'd be like, ah, da, 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 can't hear that. So I'm sure it's not like very fun going back to these failure moments because you, you it seems that you put all positivity in your life and Correct. that's what you focus on, yeah. which is awesome. So yeah. 
Is this uh, a know, conversation you haven't had very often? No, then? no, yeah. I haven't had this conversation very often. A lot of people just want to hear what's going on now, especially with my speaking. A lot of people want to know, you know, how I get the results that I get, and so you know, we'll get to that part of my career. But uh, you know, one of the books that helped me was called "What You Say When You Talk to Yourself" by Dr. Shad Helmstetter. I mean, yeah, it's a it's a classic. It's older, and it basically I loved this book. They had a program at the end where I think it was $80, and they would send you these CDs of this guy, Dr. Shad Helmstetter, talking. And it would literally say things like, you can do it. You know, you're a great person. You are doing great things. I mean, it sounds a little silly, but I, I listened to those a lot. I made my own that I'm on the right path. I'm doing you know this, and things are working out well for me. I think people would hear that kind of a technique and go, that is dumb. That's something from 1970. You know, we've got the internet now. We've got way better technology. And I'm sitting here kind of going, that is what worked for me. It's that's all that matters. Yeah, it's a classic, I would say, classic technique of talking to yourself. Like think and grow rich, Napoleon Hill. It's a, kind of the same concept. Those things, I, I read all those, yeah. you know. And, uh, but I would say this one thing, what you say when you talk to yourself, no one hears about the book, I'll bring it up. And, you know, people heard about Blink by Malcolm Gladwell, yeah. but they don't know. <laughs> and, and that's because it's a silly, it's a silly title even, you know, the, the font on the front of this book is very outdated and stuff, but it helped me. And even now, if I catch any gossipy or bad talk or just kind of general complaining, I have a visceral, I have some vibes in me that want to fight or get away from the situation because I've spent so much time literally like brainwashing myself towards uh, uh, solution-oriented thoughts and, and problem-solving and helping and serving kinds of thoughts. And I feel sometimes, you know, alone with that a little bit. But is it something your parents did as well? Like, did they did they instill that positive energy into you? Or is that something like you stumbled over a book it's something, I stumbled, it's something it. I stumbled upon. They they were doing things that was was from from their era of growing up, which was you, you know, go to a good college and you get a good job that has insurance and a good pension and all that. And I actually have never had a real job. I mean, I've had bosses, you know, I've had people that... But you've never gone and sat in an office for nine hours a day. No, it was something that I was running from. It was something that I was... I felt... You know, and, and some listeners are going to be in cubicles and stuff, but but for me, it, it felt like a type of jail. I remember just seeing people. Again, I don't want to insult anybody, but this is just me. Well, how I, if, they're, if they're listening to this, they're pro there's probably some part of them that doesn't want to be sitting in that cubicle. Yeah. To be honest with you, so for that person, what would you recommend? Knowing that everybody's different and everybody has different skills and passions or purposes. But well, if they're young enough, and, and in my opinion, that's you got to kind of be under 40, you got to go crazy. You know, we know the information, especially now the information on what to do is just all there. And, and now the challenge is executing or, or actually doing things. There are many ways to do that. There are many ways to, quote unquote, burn the boats and, and go for your passion and stuff like that. It's not like you just quit and then, you know, there's... So whatever that way is, you know, do it with wisdom. But yeah, like you said. Don't put your family at risk, but start something on the side. At least, yeah. you know, and I would say that 
like you said, our, our life is short. So now there is plenty of work that is w done well, that is done in a cubicle or in an office. So, but for me at that time, khakis and a blue shirt and a cubicle felt like a type of jail to me at that time. So it was something that I was running from and I wanted to be a part of creative things and I wanted to tour. So that's something that was specifically custom made for me. And I encourage listeners to, to do what's custom made for them. I don't surf at all. I tried it once and it was like, I was just, I was horrible, you know, but, but I, I, I can use the analogy of that. I wanted to, you know, be out there in the ocean and whenever the right wave came along, I wanted to be able to ride that wave for a while and then go back out there and try to find another wave. So I don't think I'm an entrepreneur. I think that I have entrepreneurial parts of me, but I, I do have a few bosses. And so I do work for other people. I'm an employee, but I wanted to do things differently. And if I wasn't able to, then I was going to at least be able to say, look, in my 20s, I really went for it. And I was leaning towards being in sales in, of some sort because I was um, interested in that. And also, I do have a proclivity to do things that I'm not comfortable with and sales I was not comfortable with. And that same guy that I did uh, painting for, he also had a window washing business. So he and I would go to like the rich areas and we would knock on doors and, and hang these leaflets on their doors. And sometimes these people would answer the door and I would, he told me the little sales pitch to say, and I was scared every time, but I did know that whole, you know, to do things that are scary like this, that would pro possibly help this guy get more window washing jobs. I, I liked that. I thought I, I knew that was character building, that there was going to be a result. So my backup plan was to be in sales of some sort. And, and I don't know if, if you're going to delete this part out or whatever, but, but I, I wanted to <laughs> actually work. I wanted to work for successories. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, no, definitely sell, not deleting. I'm not taking yeah, this out now. <laughs> I wanted to sell those lithographs that's and stuff awesome. that are, that are kind of cheesy now, but, but that's how much I was into the, the positive in that yeah. personal development world. And, and it, it totally definitely helped me and still does. And I want to get into it, obviously with your speaking, like I heard you speak in San Diego with, at Todd Herman's event and was amazing standing ovation. And I want to get more into that, but I think it's too interesting to, to leave us on a cliffhanger of, you know, talking to Shania Twain's guitarist. And then mm. what, ha so what happened from there? Yeah. You know, I share from the stage in, in a very humorous and colorful way, but, but here sitting here with you and moving things along is that basically because of a cold call, I called this guy Brent the timing was really interesting too, that there was a fiddle player. There's three fiddle players for Shania and this one guy kind of quit and also was kind of let go. So they were in a position where they needed somebody. And Brent was kind of like, there's this guy calling me. He plays violin, fiddle, and you know, let's just try him. And so when he told me about this country music thing, I definitely felt it was not right for me because I associated country music with like garth brooks like well slower. garth brooks garth brooks is good yeah well, yeah. But as far awesome. as like you know i it's tough i mean it just wasn't my thing you know if you if i was to watch cmt which would play these country music videos they'd show these beautiful people but they it wasn't like a bunch of chinese people <laughs> right no it was not so you know and and even just the twang and everything look i understood that as if it was like from a different planet but i'm just like you put a chinese guy in there and literally I thought the guy is going to get made fun of. You put that Chinese guy there on, on CMT 
And, you know, I understand, I try to see things from other people's perspective. And I'm like, I actually wouldn't blame some of these folks from whatever states. Georgia. <laughs> yeah, whatever states to like make fun of this guy. Yeah. And I didn't want to be made fun of. I wanted to be liked. So, but I wasn't working that much. And so I, uh, I knew that it wasn't a small endeavor. Um, everyone goes, oh yeah, well it was Shania Twain. Well, obviously it was huge. Not at that time. It was. Uh, it wasn't that huge at that time. And she, you weren't jumping at the opportunity per se. Like you knew well, it was a good opportunity. I, but. I did. I did jump at it um, eventually, but not jumping at it like you know that I also worked with Celine Dion. That one I went after like crazy. But the Shania thing, I was uh, like, I, again, country music wasn't my favorite thing. I didn't see where I would fit into this thing. But yeah, it was an opportunity and I didn't have that many opportunities. I did respect Brent Barkas a lot and Brent was there. So I was like, oh, maybe I could work with Brent. So I'm not one to say no to things. And so I did this audition. They asked me to prepare a few things and, and I ended up doing the audition and some interesting happened, interesting things happened during that audition her husband at the time was Mutt Lang, who was kind of running the whole show. And she and him basically said, you're the guy. So I was so surprised. Like, really? I mean, <laughs> are you sure? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but I knew it was a big deal. I mean, once I kind of saw even just the personnel, even the equipment in the room, I was like, this is huge. I was like, and we rehearsed for, they had already rehearsed for like five months. And I came in in the middle of that. And we rehearsed another five months. I mean, typically a band rehearses for three weeks and then they tour for like four months. Shania at that time would rehearse for a year and tour for two years and go around the world like twice. So, yep, I knew that it was big and I was I was glad to to join in. Yeah, and, and I'll just say this as an aside, not trying to point fingers or name any names, but... You know, I, I just performed with Shania last weekend at Stagecoach Festival, and we were talking about how some of the other band members were saying, you know, reflecting upon how I had gotten there. And like I said, somebody kind of quit. And But there was another factor in there was that, that he didn't handle his alcohol well. I've gotten four major jobs, all six-figure things, that are just simply, forget the money, just great tours. Because the person before me had alcohol issues, had an alcohol problem or, or drank too much at one point and hit on someone's wife or just couldn't wake up and make it to the bus call to make it to the plane. And just, and these organizations, I mean, people think it's like rock and roll and fun and stuff. No, it's, it's business, it, right? It's business and a lot of fun. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I actually really don't drink at all. So. I just thought I'd say that. I mean, it's just like there are opportunities out there. You know, if someone right now is listening and going through a big failure, I am here to tell you, you hang in there long enough and you're kind of doing things right that people are looking for reliable people. And there are people that are in positions that are amazing and they might trip up or mess up. You're not hoping that that happens, but it does happen in all industries. You it's know, happened four times for you. It's, for me. That's yeah, yeah. amazing. Yeah. And and when they, the people you replaced, when they sobered up or got their act together, were they able to get that job back or were you a staple pretty much? Like you weren't like a yep. fill-in. You nope. were, you were, you're the guy. I paused right there because I went through all four acts and I, I know these guys and it, 
it, they never got to something that big. They're still playing music, all of them. But no, I mean, obviously alcohol is an okay thing, but I also think that it kind of can mess things up. And it's very amazing how this alcohol thing is so normal, right? Yet it does cause problems, but no one talks about that. So you know? true. Very no true. one talks about that. At the same time, I do know that, uh, you know, like beer is what makes a lot of music business happen. A lot of sports happen. And so it is what it is. And I think that people need to be wise <laughs> with it. I mean, I'm not here to like bring a downer to the podcast, but it, I just wanted to say that, that that's where something opened up for me. Elaine opened up for me. And if you're, you know, you're in a place where it's just like dark clouds and that's how I felt. It was dark clouds. And like when the, when it opened, it's like the clouds parted and there was like sunlight and like I was able to run towards it. And, and when it's all like the planets are aligning, like it happens. So, and that's what happened with me. So I want to be encouraging and inspiring to people. So no, that's, that that's what happened. How, yeah. how long did you tour with Shania? Obviously you still do some gigs with her, right? Yep. There was, I did two, two year world tours with her. So it was 98 through 99. And then it was 2002 through 2004. I ended up working with Celine Dion and then a, a lot of other country acts, believe it or not, because they saw me working with Shania. And then I auditioned for Trans-Siberian Orchestra when I moved to Los Angeles here 10 years ago. And then Trans-Siberian Orchestra has become like my main thing. But Spot Dates with Shania recently, and that's been awesome, like full circle story. And it's, it's, it's hard to believe that so much time has gone by. But at the same time, that's just the nature of life. And, and I'm glad that that all that I was striving for happened. Like, like when I wrote that letter and got fired from my job, a lot of the, of the, of that was from the letter. It stopped me from ever doing anything with the letter or even the way I talk that vibe of, Hey, I'm right. You're wrong. This is what happened. And this is what you should do. Like that whole thing. I am just never coming off of that vibe to so you're anyone. saying that at the end of the first world tour with Shania you didn't write her a letter asking for more money correct <laughs> correct knowing, knowing that there was there's always more work there's yeah. always things to do and just stay in play whereas what I did with Jars of Clay I took a stand and then I wasn't in play anymore you know it was over and so it was just bad business you know and and that's that's what my 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 dad knew that and most people that are wiser would have seen and seen the young attitude that I had and and the best attitude to have is just an open attitude and and if you're complaining like it's very easy to do and a lot of people do it so you just join in but if you're complaining that means you're not solving a problem so I'd rather you know you solve problems or wait to solve the problem later but just to blow stuff up which was my attitude I'm like well this is wrong so I don't care that's a very young this is a attitude and I had it. This is a very good, I'm, I think it's kind of a serendipitous that we're sitting here together talking because everything you just said, like I'm going through something, like I told you, I was exiting one business and in the middle of a firestorm right now, just disputes wow. and all this other stuff. That's just kind of a nightmare. But like you said, it's more, it, it like I've, I've started to see this myself, having an open attitude, it takes less of a hold on me. And I'm just like, okay, it'll, it'll be resolved how it needs to be resolved. I'll move on. That'll be done. We'll move forward rather than holding like this resentment and this anger and letting it kind of consume me. So I think, you know, one, thank you for sharing that because that 
something I needed to hear right now, yeah. to be honest with you. Yeah. And, and you're trying your best also while having that open attitude. And yeah, you know, I mean, I think people need to know that all of us that are, that are doing these entrepreneurial things have gone through these things and we hate it, but sometimes we still need to go through it. So it's interesting because typically with podcasts, all I talk about are all my successes right, so that right. I can promote <laughs> and all that stuff. But at the same time, I am totally fine talking like this and, and encouraging people that are perhaps going through a dark time. It definitely happens, happened with me and I didn't like it and, and I persevered and there was some, and I, you know, was failing on, but I also wanted to fight on. I wanted to try and I do. <laughs> just thinking to myself, somebody listening is going to be like, "Oh, I don't want to go hear this guy talk <laughs> talk about all his failures the whole time." That's right. No, but just just on a, a side, your incredible live, the performance, the speaking. I want to go into kind of how you've taken the whole positivity side, the self growth, self development side, and kind of you know, mixed it together with your performing because it was a performance like none I've ever seen where it was a mix between, you know, an inspirational message talking about your story as well as listening to amazing music. So how did, how did you eventually get to the point where you wanted to take that message and mix it with the music? It just happened one day where someone was doing an arts conference and knew my story about going from a bit of a failure into touring with Shania and Celine at the same time. And so those are big household names. And, and they asked me to speak at an arts conference in San Diego, actually. And this was 12 years ago now. And I told the guy, you know, I don't speak because in my mind, speaking is for like... Put a suit on and... A suit, yeah. number one. Authors or politicians or pastors. And I'm just like, look, I'm a musician. You know, I'm a cool guy. <laughs> so I'll play at your... Th and he goes, nope, we really want you to speak. We think you have a great story. He's like, here's $2,000. We're going to like fly you. And I was like, that's pretty good to just, you know, go visit San Diego. So were you nervous? Was that the very first, nervous. first time you've actually spoken? First time. Yeah. And I, I didn't think it was for me. So I did the best that I could, which was I typed the whole thing out. So I had like six pages and I had rehearsed it. I did a lot of things wrong. And, and that's how I'm able to do what I do now very powerfully because I did so many things wrong the first time. But through that kind of failing in that first one, a lot of good things happened. So I was up there and sharing my story and I was shaking. So the papers are shaking. So that's probably one of the reasons why you shouldn't hold paper because <laughs> if you're going it, to, it's just this thing that it's like almost like a white flag, like you're, you're vibrating, you're shaking this paper. What I noticed though, was that people were super engaged and when I talked about being fired from my first job, especially guys were kind of getting misty eyed and they were understanding what I, you know, how, what I felt by losing a job and how that affected my self-esteem. And so I continued with, you know, doing the whole story and I did have some music in there and I got a standing ovation. So the guy said, uh, okay, well, all that beginning stuff that you did, cut that out and get right to the part where you got fired because that's where people were really in. And so he was helping shape this thing. So I got rid of that and I had to do the talk four times. And after the second time, he said, okay, now I want you to get rid of the paper because it's kind of like in the way and you'll remember it. And I was like so attached to this paper, my <laughs> notes. And he, he got rid of it and there was some stumbling around, but yes, I did remember most of it and there was more engagement. So there was great success there. And then afterwards, people were just like, well, where's your stuff? Like your product? And I was like, I don't have any. <laughs> so that's when I learned I had to have something, yeah. uh, somewhat of a product. And uh, that same 
host had the talk uh, on a DVD and, and actually just took it upon himself to send it to a couple speakers bureaus. But it's gotten to a point now that, that like I just booked myself and that there's a whole thing. I don't know if you know about speakers bureaus and how they work. I can tell you a bit later, but, but I, I, it took me a long time to learn that they don't really market you. They will book you, but they're not promoting you. No. Okay. And neither do, neither you, you might learn this from Rob Cosberg, yeah. neither do publishers. Got it. But I always thought people did. Right. That's, you know, that's your job, right? Yeah. <laughs> so that you can get your 20% or whatever. Yeah. But the host of the, of the event in San Diego kind of got me connected with some speakers bureaus. And I, I ended up kind of getting on a speaker circuit that there was a need for what I do as an Asian guy, as a, uh, a musician that's the opposite of boring, you know, that. I was kind of marketed as this tour de force, high energy person. So I spoke all over the place and I learned all oh, this message that I have of performing effectively works with left-brained engineers at Boeing or NASA or government agencies. And then at the big sales conferences or like the conference that I was with you, uh, with the entrepreneurs, they all love it. And so I'm actually on the grow right now. I'm learning a lot Got right it. now. How often are you speaking right now? I speak about once a week. Oh, wow. Yeah. You're speaking that's more than I thought. Yeah. Like I said. So you're I, hustling. I'm a little exhausted, yeah. actually. You know, still learning a lot. You know what? Having you know what, fun with it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't use the word fun very much, but I do like working. So, you know, I am enjoying the hard work and the reward of, why of don't you doing use, a why, job well why, done. Why don't you use the word fun? Is it a weird connotation? Like, do you associate it with something? Or Let's see. It's not very powerful, ah, so it's not very effective. So, it. you know, like I coach people on speaking sometimes and some like they'll get this advice like one, just be yourself. That's terrible, <laughs> you know, because if yourself is very nervous and not prepared, right. you're getting up in front of a crowd of people and you have to like captivate them in like second one. It's a performance, right? Essentially. Yeah, speaking is a performance. Yeah. People don't realize that. And when they get up in front of people and you've got hundreds of people looking to you to be a leader and to be, you know, to, to be a great performer as a speaker and you don't got the goods, people are frustrated. So, and the other thing is that people will say is like, just have fun out there. And I'm like, that's really bad advice. <laughs> I would say prepare and prepare well with and get good coaching. I mean, I mean, like one of the tips I give is a lot of people just for some reason will rehearse their things in front of a mirror. And that's very bad because you're analyzing yourself as you're expressing and you might even analyze like I don't like the way my lip moves in that thing and that has nothing to do with anything and it puts you in your head so you're judging yourself and that's the worst thing that can be happening when you're performing and or speaking so but one of the things that people will say is like just have fun out there and that's that yeah, you can go have fun out there but you might suck <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't I don't that I think that's something that maybe makes the person feel good for a moment but when you're out there it's uh to me it's more like a, a war like that's why let's just go to a different industry, which is like comedians. They have the phrase of kill or die because it's, it's, they're alone there with a the mic. They've got their bits. They've got their preparation and they're either going to kill this audience or they're going to die. So for them, the stakes are a lot higher. And for me as a speaker, the stakes are very high. Mm. Is, so that how, is that how you approach performances? Yeah. Kill or, kill or die? Yeah. yeah. I raise the stakes and that's why people are basically either – uproarious laughter or a lot of applause or standing ovations or cursing even people are just like holy crap you know who is this guy because from from the very second it's like a ton of energy because i have 
you know, made a lot of mistakes. I've seen other speakers. I've you know, studied the performing arts for a couple decades with great coaching here in Los Angeles that a lot of people aren't able to take off the time from work to go get. Yeah. Like if you're going to be a professional speaker, you're basically saying, hey, I'm going to be like a a surgeon, but you don't want a surgeon saying, hey, I'm just going to have some fun. <laughs> go, go bring a leg. Yeah. I'm going to have some fun <laughs> operating on your knee. I'd be like, not this surgeon. I want a surgeon that has operated on a thousand knees and has, has great confidence and was trained by the best other surgeons so that he can go in there with great confidence and make his incision. You're in good hands with that surgeon. With me as a speaker, I want that client to feel like I'm in good hands with this guy because this guy is going to have the vibe of the room be so uplifted that when I have to say what I have to say as CEO of this company, that the vibe of the room is already so high that I can just basically ride this wave and have a great gathering. And that's my job is to have these conferences get that huge lift. So that's why people put me at the end or they put me right after lunch. They put me at those challenging times so that people feel that they got a lot out of that conference. So, um, and I, I tell the, the decision makers exactly what I'm going to do. And they know that I know what I'm talking about because we've all been through so many of these conferences where the speaker was unprepared or late or something like that. And it ends up, it's, it's quite amazing actually at how much money is flying around at these events. And, and sometimes some of these things tank and I'm just like, I'm the opposite. I guarantee a standing ovation. That's not out of arrogance. I'm saying this is an actual, uh, response that I want you to be able to use for your message and for your company or for your gathering. And you take it seriously, right? It's not like I'm going to collect this check, go stand on stage for a few minutes, pull out my violin and then be done with it and take my money and run. Correct. And that's from the, just the, the work ethic of a musician. So yeah. So you, I don't know, you, you might've seen me at the conference that I'll stay to the bitter end. Um, and a lot of speakers, they just take off. <laughs> yeah. So because I was that person that wanted to meet the speaker and ask a couple questions and maybe my question wasn't so great, but if somebody was kind to me and encouraged me, I could run with that. It means yeah. a lot, right? And I, and I try to do that. And yes, I'm spent, you know, I, oh, I'm sure. so yeah. spent, but, but I wanted to do that for my client at the conference where you and I met. I wanted to do that for Todd. I would not have met Todd if not for our mutual friend, Rob Cosberg. So that's, that's a whole different story, but on the, on, on the other end of, of, of failing is that on the non-failing side that there are a lot of opportunities and different opportunities bleed into other things. And with Rob, you have a, are you working on a book with Rob? That's right. Cool. I met Rob because I brought my car to a car meet and his son, Cole, liked my car. <laughs> cool. Yeah. So then- Small world. Yeah. Crazy. And then, uh, so this, this guy- says to me, so, so what have you done to afford this car? And I said, well, I've been touring for like 20 years with uh, some different artists. But then I said, what would uh, I would probably say really helped me was that I have used some of the techniques from Grant Cardone. Have you heard of this oh, person? Oh, yeah. I know Grant Cardone. So he goes, I know Grant Cardone. And Grant Cardone so polarizing, right? You love her and hate him. <laughs> exactly. So I was waiting to see where he was going to go because yeah. he could be like, I hate that guy. Then I'll be like, ah, you know, no big yeah. deal. But he goes, I'm actually getting dinner tonight with Kevin Harrington. So right there, he and I were just like, okay, I mentioned Grant Cardone, okay, Kevin Harrington. And I said, well, I'm actually speaking at a conference with Kevin Harrington next week. So Rob and I knew we could see eye to eye with just some of the people that we were interacting with. 
So it, it is interesting how, yes, how one thing leads to the next. And then, you know, Rob had been talking with Todd Herman and Todd was trying to come up with something different for this conference as opposed to the last conference. And, and Rob has already been helping me speak at some pretty big conferences. And he said, you know, that Roddy will be really good for you. And um, that's how you and I met. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, like people don't, I, I, don't, I hope that story is encouraging to people that's very interesting. This car that I have, how something, that kind of a story is not seen on YouTube. You know, where Cole, Rob's son, is liking my car. I'm very friendly, especially when young people like my car. And then Rob and I get in a quick conversation. You know, one thing can lead to the next, and I'm able to help his business, and he's helping my business already without even the book being written yet. He's helped me quite a bit. So Simple conversation goes a long way sometimes. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we were talking about was, you know, what's something that I did recently that had the risk of failure. Is that what you said? Yeah. Well, so yeah, exactly. So what's the last thing that you did to get outside your comfort zone? Well, so last weekend I did the stagecoach festival with Shania Twain and I was in a grocery store. So this guy in flip-flops, shorts, he had like a golf hat on. I mean, we're talking, this guy's totally on vacation, <laughs> was pushing a cart with a golden retriever in the cart I love animals. So I, I mean, I don't even think I just go, you know, I ask first, is your dog friendly? And I'm totally petting this dog. And if I may say, you know, I'm pretty influenced by Grant Cardone and he makes a sale out of anything, right? So uh, he asked me what I was doing and I, you know, provided some value. I'm in Shania Twain's band and he's like, oh, it's interesting. I'm like, what do you do? And he was talking about uh, real estate and solar and and I said, well, you know, I do actually do speaking for groups. And he's like, oh, what do you speak about? So I talked about performing effectively. And, and we're in the middle of this grocery store petting his golden retriever. So we had a nice talk. But he didn't, he wasn't like super interested. He was a bit aloof. And I kind of looked at him like, this is like, who knows what this is. So uh, I was going to leave. And I was like, I still need to give him my card. So it was awkward turned around, walked right back up and I said, hey, you know, here's my card, you know, look me up. I actually have two kinds of cards. One is uh, an expensive VIP card that has my personal details on it. Another is a cheaper card that has my social media stuff on it. I gave him the social media one. So he went home and he told his family, he's like, I met this guy and then his niece knew kind of who I was and who I worked with. They have an event coming up and so that's why I was a little late to talk with you today is that I got on this sales call with this niece and they're actually going to put, they're, they're putting an event together and they're going to have me come out and speak and perform. So that if you had known the feelings that I had, I definitely had feelings like this is kind of silly. Like yeah, this isn't going to work. I was going to ask, what made you, what made you go back and give them your card? Principle. Just based on principle, we interacted, exchanged some value. It kind of petered out. But he didn't offend me. I didn't, you know, we, there was nothing bad that happened. So based on principle, you have to exchange information. I also asked him for his business card. He said he didn't have one. So in the business card exchange thing that still happens, people, I think people should have <laughs> business cards if they're listening. You should have a business card. You need to make sure you get their information. So I actually didn't do that with this guy, but at least he had my information. His niece went very 
ballistic about it and has been emailing <laughs> me a lot about it. And they have this sales event coming up and they, they're going to probably book me. I'll, I'll update you on what happened. But uh, that I was ready to walk out the door and I was also in flip-flops and, and was sunburnt. And so, you know, to have a sale happen because of a golden retriever definitely can happen. And, and now, but then when you look back, you're like, oh, you know, that worked out. But in the, when it's happening, you don't see how that worked out. You don't see that that's going to work out. So based on principle, you have to follow up and you have to, you know, I probably, to do it right, I probably should have gotten his information. It didn't feel right. You know, he had kind of said no when I asked if he had a business card. I said, here's mine. He saw enough value there that he mentioned it to his wife and his niece. And, and so there was a reward. I do stuff like that all the time, every day. And a lot of times nothing comes of it, but I also don't remember it. Like I just don't, yeah, I block yeah, out just, any negatives. It's an, it's an interesting thing because I, I actually think about this a lot. Like my wife and I have done quite a bit of traveling through Southeast Asia, through Europe all over and we you know we'll do these little excursions and we'll be sitting there like with another you know another 10 people for the entire day get to talk you know get to know them a little bit and then at the end you say okay bye and don't even exchange information it's like yeah it's it's such a lost it's such a missed opportunity yeah because i think everybody you interact with you know give them your information keep in touch who knows what could happen down the road yeah and for my life it my career has all been relationships and my first speaking agent, I met um, in a casino in Australia, didn't even talk to him later, but he heard about me that I was trying to get into speaking. And he was the one that kind of promoted me to, to be speaking from my first speaking agent, like Speakers Bureau. He was the agent there, like over a decade later. So I, it was, it's all been through relationships. So I think people don't see that they're a little short-sighted i definitely see the long view of relationships and like, especially in what the, can i get from this guy today it's yeah i think a lot of people think like that i think a lot of people think like that and i think a lot of normal cool people go well what does it matter you know i don't want to come off as somebody that's being salesy or something so let's just let this go and let it be nice but no one's looking at me as being this guy's pushy and desperate they're just like that was a really cool guy now there are ways of increasing the 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 good times or the return on this thing. Like if you're flying first class, you you have to kind of like say, look, you got to talk to a couple people in first class because there's a reason why they're there. So I push myself to open up conversation. If that person thinks that I'm a little bit whatever, so be it. Because when you're in first class, you're flying there usually it's because somebody's bringing me to go speak or something. They've got connections, you know, and I got that from a, a book, What They Don't Teach You in Harvard Business School by Mark H. McCormick. So the classic books, I love those. So if, if you're at like a, a networking meeting somewhere and then you're just handing out business cards all over the place, you know, I think you and I may, maybe have both done that. I've definitely done that. And that doesn't work. Does not work because there's... There was no barrier to entry in that situation. No connection, no value exchange. But when I was backstage at Stagecoach with Shania Twain, you know, there's me, there's Nick Jonas, there's these, you know, Cindy Crawford, there's, I'm just saying the names that are familiar, but you know the people that are next to them, that they've got connections and stuff. And if you present yourself well, you can possibly make something happen. And not just for yourself, but you can provide a service or a product for them. And... So you want to kind of get in those areas that has some barrier of entry, 
and the people that are there, yes, are normal. They're just very normal people, and they are also very open to a conversation. And so it's really up to me to provide that conversation and get it going. It's a little awkward, but I, I don't spend enough time judging myself. Typically, things work out well, and sometimes people stay in touch, and sometimes people don't. But at least in that moment, I provided a positive spirit. Sure. And a lot of times people want to keep in touch just based on that. But sometimes it just doesn't work out because maybe they're thinking about their own selfish things, and that's fine too. But I want to be at least give the opportunity for us to exchange information. And if I can help them or they can help me, then, you know, let's do it. So, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people help each other out. I think that's something that people don't know that people that are kind of have more money and more power and more influence, they're all helping each other out so much. And People that are middle class or lower don't realize that because they're just kind of protecting what they have and they kind of look suspiciously at people. I used to train as a cyclist in college. There was this race called Little 500. And if you do any racing in in cycling, which I never did after college, it's this thing in college only, there's like four levels. There's like Cat 4, Category 3, 2, and 1 is professional, like you're doing the Tour de France. I either did category four, or there's actually a, a rec league that's even worse than that. And everyone's totally elbowing each other and, and, and vibing each other out and cursing at each other. It's just a huge fight. People that are like in category two and one, they're drafting off each other, helping each other, pointing out the potholes, and they're getting themselves in position so that near the end, they can all sprint and someone's going to win. It's a good and analogy. It's definitely what happens in business and and you've got to get into that thinking of how the rich people think they're helping each other out. Totally. So obviously this is the fail on podcast. The whole idea of getting people outside their comfort zone to push themselves a little bit. If you had to name a challenge to give to the listener and myself, what would that be? Well, this is Los Angeles where we are <laughs> right yep. now. And I would say, and, 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 and this kind of thing is is for me directly, but I think it's for everyone. If there is a famous person that you admire for whatever reason, you don't have to justify it, you know, perhaps come up with a reason to contact that person, whether you can serve them, whether you need to ask them for something for a charity for, for to be auctioned off or something and pick up the phone and you can do other ways, LinkedIn, Instagram message, email. But at the end of the day, you got to pick up that phone and keep on doing it beyond the point where you feel you're being annoying <laughs> because you're not being annoying. Yeah. You know, someone once, I asked somebody once, I said, am I being annoying? They said, you're not being annoying. You're being persistent. And I didn't really know that there was a difference. Well, the difference is, is annoying is that you're simply being annoying. But if you call 10 times, that's not annoying automatically. If you're always providing value and that positive vibe, you're just simply being persistent. So I would say contact that famous person somehow until you reach that famous person. And all famous people are reachable. After this, I'm actually going to do some training with Krav Maga, which is like a fighting you know, thing. And he is training Sean Penn for a movie. So not that I'm going to do anything there, but there are connections that you would never really know. You know, a lot of people don't know that I with Kevin Costner, that Kevin Costner even has a band, <laughs> right, you know, and that right. he has become a friend and a mentor of mine. 
Now, I don't want a bunch of people messaging me about how to get something <laughs> from Kevin Costner. But those people are, are hard to get to, but they are also usually very open if you come to them presenting some value and presenting a positive vibe with that. So I encourage people to, to reach out to those people and, and tell me the story or tell us the story of what happened. It will be scary, but there will definitely be a reward. And there is that person. They're, they're there. I guarantee I you something, somebody listen to this, at least down the road, something will come out of this. Yeah. I feel it. Yeah. I feel it. The vibes are too positive. <laughs> awesome. So what are you most excited about moving forward? Obviously doing a lot of speaking. Are you still yeah. playing much? Well, I will always do Trans-Siberian Orchestra every winter as long as they'll have me and as long as we're going to tour. So that takes care of winter. So, But I am writing a book with Rob Cosberg's group. And then I'm also coming up with a training program. And that's what I've learned, that I'm very low on... I have basically been selling my service of speaking. I will still be speaking and teaching on performing effectively and sharing my inspiring story. So my speaking will never become a sales pitch. Not that that's bad. It's just two different types of speaking. I'm always going to be the one that is more inspiring and teaching. But there is a training program that I have on how to speak more effectively and how to perform more effectively in front of an audience of one or audience of many. So and it just allows you to impact more people, right? Because it's not just you anymore. Now it's a program that you can get out to the masses. Correct. And and the book will be an intro to that, but the, the training program will have actual exercises. And I do have uh, very unique ways of getting ready for things. So those are the things that are that are coming out. But yes, I'm speaking quite a bit and will continue to do so at least uh, through, you know, through this year, next year, I'm already booking things next year. So love it. Well, I don't want to take too much more of your time, but thanks so much for joining me today. And thanks for being flexible. I know we had to switch locations a couple of times. So yeah. Appreciate that. Yeah. I appreciate you. And thank you for having me on your podcast. Awesome. Thanks, Roddy. All right. So you can find Roddy at Roddy Chong on Twitter. That's at Roddy Chong. And of course, for that spelling, along with all the links and resources Roddy and I discussed, including more information on his business and performances, it can all be found at the page we created especially for this episode. That'll be at failon.com slash 042. And as mentioned at the beginning of this episode, this closes out the end of season one for the Failon podcast. Next, we are going to be shifting gears a bit. We'll move away from all interview episodes and explore some new formats. I'll be sharing my journey and process as I built out my Fail to Freedom coaching program. And if you do want more freedom in your life and you know you are destined for more than your current path, the program might be a great fit for you. The only requirement, actually there's two requirements, but the main requirement is that you can't be an asshole, number one. And two, you must have an expertise that provides a life or business transformation for someone. And if you're not sure if you qualify or if you have that expertise, I'd love to chat and discuss. Just shoot me an email at robfalon.com and we can grab a few minutes to see if it might be a fit for you. That's it for now. See you in season two. That's all for this episode of the Fail On Podcast. For more resources, show notes, and action items to help you find success in your failures, sign up for our mailing list at failon.com. For more actionable inspiration, we'll catch you next time right here on the Fail On Podcast.